When I was a young socialist in, in college, uh, two of the people on the left that I were in, was in contact with was David and, and Sarah. And a lot of our mutual points of references were actually conservative thinkers. And like my point of reference when I started in Jackson was like National Review and not anything on the left. So I think it's kind of funny that we're now in conversations with conservatives. So it might annoy them. Like it annoys me when, when Bannon says that he's a Leninist. I'm like, you have no idea what Lenin means or whatnot. So I'll, I'll return the favor. <laughs> That's Bhaskar Sunkara, editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine, joking just a little bit about the fact that he and other writers on the left might share, as a point of reference at least, the rise of the conservative magazine National Review in the late 50s. Why does Sunkara, a democratic socialist, discuss what he might find instructive about coming to understand the rise of a conservative publication? Well, because he was asked to discuss it. In today's episode, we hear from three thinkers on the left, including Sankara, as well as three thinkers on the right. They discuss election 2016, and they talk about the potential for, but also significant impediments to, finding common ground. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. On May 5th, right in the middle of the Howenstein Center's conservative progressive summit, three writers and thinkers on the right met with three on the left to discuss the significance of election 2016. What did the victory of Donald Trump, as well as the rise of Bernie Sanders on the left, mean for American politics? Was the center being pulled apart? And could that, in their view, be a good thing? It comes as no surprise that our panelists, separated ideologically, don't agree about many points of politics or, as we hear in this episode, culture. Still, they do have in common a critique of the so-called neoliberal center, or at least most of them share a similar or related distrust for it. They haggle over some of the key differences between their respective positions. They also talk about the opportunities they see in building new coalitions post-2016 and how they go about articulating the alternatives to the political status quo for which they advocate. Before we jump into the conversation, I'll introduce the voices you'll hear in the order you'll hear them. The first is mine, because I moderated the panel. Uh, The first to respond to my question is Sarah Leonard. Leonard is senior editor at The Nation, as well as contributing editor to Dissent and The New Inquiry. Second, Bhaskar Sankara is, again, editor and publisher of Jacobin. Third, David Marcus is the literary editor of The Nation and editor-at-large at Dissent Magazine. Then we hear from our panelists on the right. Daniel McCarthy is editor-at-large at the American Conservative, for, formerly its editor-in-chief. Following McCarthy is Ingrid Gregg, who is chairman of the board at the Archbridge Institute and formerly president of the Philadelphia Society. Finally, Winston Elliott III is president of the Free Enterprise Institute and editor-in-chief of The Imaginative Conservative. The first half of our panel conversation between those six is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Uh, So uh, what generally, in your view, has been the effect of the 2016 presidential election? Not just Trump's victory, but also, of course, um, Clinton's loss and the significant rise of Bernie Sanders and the significance that those two things have, I think, for the Democratic Party. In light of all this, what has the significance of the election been on the work you do? So for Sarah and Bhaskar and David, what has it meant for the kind of writing and editing you do on the left? And for Dan and Ingrid and Winston, same question to you as conservatives. How has your work changed or reacted to the post-election 2016 tenor of political and cultural debate in America? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having all of us and for that incredibly lovely introduction. It's wonderful to be here. And I am a native Michigander, so I'm especially happy to be here. Um, and I was telling you before, but, but back in college, I studied the Southern agrarians, which led me to consider many conservatives who had critiques of unfettered capitalism, including Russell Kirk, um, as well as Genovese, Lash, um, and other great thinkers. And so it was wonderful to be invited here in particular, um, even if we are uh, located under the name of DeVos, which... Um, <laughs> you know, despite her best attempts not to get appointed to the cabinet, um, we uh, will be seeing for some time. So um, the, 
the the election i i just want to start by saying and i you know my my colleagues have you know i'm looking forward to hearing um what they say but um I think it's worth saying from the beginning that we would rather have been fighting Hillary from the left than Trump. Um, because there is, there is a difference, right? And I wanna lay that out because that's often an accusation that's made of the left is that we can't tell the difference between anything to our right. And I think that's not true. Um, because one of the advantages of being in debate with liberals is that they claim to have many of the same goals that we have, say, giving people health care. And we can say, well, if you really believe that, then you have to do X. You have to have single payer. Um, and that, that's a debate in which you have traction. Um, you have less traction, obviously, when it comes to debating um, the right wing of the Republican Party. And further, the things that will be produced by the right wing of the Republican Party will be things that make our lives harder. They make it harder to organize, whether that's a right wing Supreme Court that messes up our politics, that means we have to fight over the fundamental right to abortion, et cetera. Um, and so that is, that is a real increase in our challenge. The upside is that it has been incredibly energizing for the left, um, and that's just one tide of many that has sort of surged since Occupy, I would argue, through the movement for black lives and up through the Bernie Sanders campaign. And in many ways, it's great to be a socialist right now. Um, you know, DSA has doubled its membership. Um, more young people favor socialism than capitalism, even the Pope doesn't like capitalism, um, and in fact has invaded specifically against trickle-down economics, which I appreciate. Um, and so in that sense, there's a level of momentum that is sort of attempting to fill in this gap that clearly exists between um, people's desire for political representation and what is actually on offer, which was clearly found to be lacking left of center. Um, and of course, Hillary won the popular vote, but she lost the election to Trump, not just to any conservative, right? So we have to consider you know, the fact that with increasing political inequality, we have increasing, with increasing economic inequality, we have increasing political inequality. And so that is a huge vacuum that the left is working very hard to fill. Yeah, um, well, yeah, again, thank you for, for having us. I, I think it's funny because um, when I was a young socialist in, in college, uh, two of the people on the left that I were in, was in contact with was David and, and Sarah. And a lot of our mutual points of references were actually conservative thinkers. And like my point of reference when I started in Jackson was like National Review and not anything on the left. So I think it's kind of funny that we're now in conversations with conservatives. Though it might annoy them. Like it annoys me when, when Bannon says that he's a Leninist. I'm like, you have no idea what Lenin means or whatnot. So I'll, I'll return the favor. <laughs> um, now, yeah, I, I think. The prime, one of the main results of the election was seeing that there's actually no political force in American society that actually has a mandate, right? Trump was, whether you like him or, or don't like him, he was a third choice of American workers, at least, uh, behind uh, not voting and voting for Hillary Clinton. Um, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic center, has been widely discredited. If you look at popularity ratings, it's quite, you know, low. Um, Bernie Sanders, of course, is now kind of the last person standing and that he's the most popular politician in the United States. But even though we can imagine maybe a scenario in which a left populist becomes elected in 2020, it's very hard to imagine, it's actually almost impossible to imagine, a scenario where someone with Bernie Sanders politics is able to assemble a kind of governing coalition that could actually legislate the things that he, he wants. So we're kind of at, a, at an impasse. Um, and my fear is that, you know, the failures of, of Trump, um, even by his own measures, to live up to some of his populist promises <laughs> and whatnot, and maybe even his defeat in 2020, which seems very possible, if not likely, will just further lead a portion of his base down um, the kind of path to kind of more dangerous form of right populism. Uh, that's why I'm always very careful to not call Trump a fascist or any of this hyperbolic rhetoric because I think that um, when we you know, actually see more radical forces on the, the right in the US, when we even see a force, not even fascism, but a force like Le Pen, you know, a US version of that, it will be much more dangerous and it will be a much more potent form of ethno-nationalist kind of xenophobia in such a way that we don't actually see in the US. So my, my parents came to the, um, 
the United States around nine, 10 months before I was uh, born. Uh, but I imagine if you poll even the most ardent of the kind of Trump um, right, 98% um, of them would not doubt my right to be an American, an American citizen, and identify that way. Um, whereas even on the European center right, the same can't be safe, said for the French or German center right. Um, where legally and otherwise, um, I, you know, I wouldn't uh, claim the right to be an American. I might live in kind of a, a ghettoized community in the suburbs of Berlin or Paris. You know, uh, the radicalism that I might have been indoctrinated with might have not been, you know, the kind of radicalism of um, Leon Trotsky or Michael Harrington, but but uh, you know, a very different kind of um, radicalism. So, in other words, my fear of the current moment is that the neoliberal center, for lack of a better word, um, is capable maybe of defeating someone like Trump, who's gaffe-prone, and even his supporters occasionally kind of have to blush at the things he says, but unable to defeat Trumpism. But Trumpism isn't actually capable of delivering what it says it can deliver to uh, many of the um, American workers and struggling middle-class people that voted for him. So we almost are at an impasse. And those of us on the left have no um, real serious program to, or even desire to reach uh, most ordinary Americans. Um, so Sa Bernie, Bernie Sanders and his message and his campaign is obviously my hope. But even then, I think there's a difference between you know, electing a left populist and like, actually pushing through the, the basic demands of this kind of populism. So where does this leave Jacobin and our, and our tasks? I think uh, part of it is to establish a kind of third pole, to establish a type of anti-establishment sentiment that isn't on the right, but is on the left, uh, when able to communicate with everyday um, Americans. And like I said, I think Sanders was a glimmer of hope, but I think a lot of the left didn't really learn the lessons from Sanders, and, and you know, the, uh, I, I'm not sure that will change in the future. So perhaps a, a function of the three of us perhaps cutting our teeth uh, and coming of political age around the same time is that we might often agree <laughs> a bit. So I, I'll try not to repeat some of the things that Sarah and Bhaskar have already said, but uh, just to maybe emphasize some other points. I, I do think it's important, and the left has often forgotten about this, to, to remember that when liberals are in power, the left is also at its most powerful. Um, in the United States, the left has never really had power. Um, we live in, you know, as Hofstetter and, and Hartz and many other people have argued, we live in a fundamentally liberal society. And so the left is often most effective when there are progressives and liberals in power to, who can listen to them. Uh, so I don't think there's any celebration on the left uh, with about the, the rise of Trump. And in fact, I think it, it puts us on the defensive in a very scary way. Um, in fact, just to, to illustrate this, I think over the past seven, eight years, 10 years, the left has really thrived in a way that it hasn't in, in probably three or four decades. Um, this may be the product of probably the three of us having the, the short-sightedness of having not had experience in the 90s or the 70s or 80s, but I think the period under Obama helped the left clarify its critique of the liberal center um, the, the 2008 crash also gave us the experience of what uh, a certain political economic system uh, meant for on our livelihoods, on the, the ways in which we can find employment, the ways in which the system is actually constricted opportunity. Um, and so I think over the past seven, eight years, we've really seen a kind of thriving left. Um, and I don't think, and it's often been framed that Bernie helped enable this left uh, to, to come into the, the public, but I think he really was revealing an emerging majority, at least with, among young people, that was already kind of fomenting or, or consolidating beforehand. Um, so I think there's something very scary about this moment, at least from the perspective of the left. But with that said, I do think that things are up for grabs much more so than they were five, 10 years ago. Uh, to, to quote from Gramsci, which is this, you know, the over-invoked line that the old is dying and the new is yet to emerge, I do think we're in this moment. And to, to kind of get to the, answer, the question that, that uh, uh, started us off, I think this is where intellectuals come in. Um, I think intellectuals and critics and intellectual journalists and editors um, 
are at their most entrepreneurial and their most effective when they're in opposition, not when they're in power. Uh, in power, our ideas often die at the, the, the kind of threshold or the, the precipices of, of power and, and the exigencies that require us to make compromises. And so I think intellectuals right now can clarify uh, and offer diagnoses of what's emerged and the varieties of it, whether it's on the right and the left. Uh, and I think they can also begin to start offering the new metaphors and even the old ones, too. I, I think, you know, a couple weeks ago, I was having lunch with a French journalist, and she remarked to me, she's, she's of the left, and she said, it's bizarre that in the U.S. everyone's so excited by socialism and democratic socialism. She's like, socialism in France is this institution that we've, we are at once are sympathetic to all of the politics of it, but frustrated by its formal expression. Why not come up with a new rubric, a new uh, way of thinking? And I would say in the United States, socialism has had to reinvent itself over and over again. Uh, and so, if anything, that we need to give new metaphors and new meanings to actually the things that we, we already believe to be of value. So I think what the role of intellectuals today is right now to both diagnose and perhaps even offer new ideas. So it's a parallel, there are two roles, criticism and perhaps even new forms of argumentation. But. Maybe we start with Dan and just sort of move <laughs> down here. Well, the uh, American conservative magazine and the general style of uh, thought that's associated with it is in the unusual position of, of having been uh, basically Trumpist in many respects uh, long before Donald Trump was involved in politics. So uh, when it comes to economic nationalism, for example, when it comes to uh, at least the idea of an America first foreign policy, and when it comes to uh, immigration restriction, all of these were themes that I was exploring uh, more than a decade ago and that many of my colleagues were as well. Um, so now I'm in the unusual position of having to evaluate a kind of premature victory that uh, you know I didn't see Trump coming and uh, having him in office and now having to um, you know, see whether or not these themes can be translated into policy is um, kind of a new challenge for me, a new, a new source of uh, sort of interest in uh, the work that I do. And uh, in terms of exactly how that applies to my work, uh, one thing I have to do now is to um, reach out quite broadly and kind of explain what uh, Trump might be trying to achieve with these policies and with these themes, while at the same time also pointing out that the logic of these arguments stands apart from any particular candidate and uh, a political official. Um, I think one of the great mistakes that movement conservatism made over the years was to invest far too much in individual um, political leaders and personalities. Uh, it's really the issues, it's really the themes and ideas that matter the most. So that's, that's uh, an important distinction that one has to maintain at this point. On the one hand, some of our ideas now seem to have more uh, prospect of being enacted than before. But on the other hand, um, you know, we have a, a leader who is uh, rather inconsistent and who has you know, a lot of baggage and who um, you know, may or may not really be devoted to the themes that he had talked about during the campaign. Uh, two other uh, aspects of uh, my work that has had to change uh, with the new administration, um, first of all, is to think more about policy and policy implementation as opposed to having a critique of the policies that both um, conventional conservatives and conventional Republicans like George W. Bush and also liberal Democrats like Barack Obama had been pursuing. Uh, at this point now, there's a need to think not only about how a uh, right-wing populist might criticize um, the uh, political establishment, but rather what you do as a right-wing populist of sorts once you get in power. And this is a question which, um, you know, one has academically thought about perhaps, but now has a, a certain uh, concrete salience to it. And finally, there's a need to um, sort of revisit history and also deepen the theory uh, behind this kind of populism and this kind of uh, um, uh, new conservatism. Uh, the, you, you've seen, so, uh, for example, uh, the creation of a number of new theoretical journals and other outlets that are trying to explore these ideas. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, yesterday, for example, American Affairs, which is a new quarterly journal that's attempting to do so. Um, so basically, it's, it's a very, uh, on the one hand, some of our ideas and themes um, are very familiar now to people who uh, are accustomed to watching uh, Donald Trump. On the, on the other hand, the actual sort of subtlety, nuance, depth, and uh, sobriety of our ideas is perhaps uh, less appreciated than ever. So that is the uh, main challenge that I'm facing. Uh, 
I very much appreciate where Daniel left off and I'll try to pick up uh, right where he left off. Uh, first though, please let me add my thanks for the invitation uh, to be here today. And also I'd like to say that um, I do have the privilege of being associated with a variety of nonprofit groups and organizations. I'm obliged on behalf of all of them to say that I speak here only for myself. Um, it seems to me that well, the underlying theme that we're all sort of hinting at is that essentially uh, the principal result of 2016 election was one of disruption. And disruption is a sort of phrase and even a kind of category of analysis that might more uh, naturally fall into a kind of progressive paradigm. I think, however, we see in the conservative world of ideas, uh, not that so much the political world, although we're seeing plenty of disruption there too, but in the conservative world of ideas, which is, which is the natural world that I have worked in um, since the late 1980s, there is as much disruption going on there uh, as there is in the political arena. Um, many of the debates in the broader conservative world of ideas that will be ongoing, many of which Daniel Winston and others in the room are contributing to um, require a long-term view of analysis and identification of solutions. And one of the principal uh, challenges, I think, that, for example, the conservative think tank world uh, and indeed the conservative foundation world, um, which were my sort of uh, direct homes, will be how to maintain a debate about immediate current policy uh, requirements and needs with this notion that for a long time there was a perception that the conservative world had a particular strength in taking the long-term world of making investments in young people who were going to be active in the conservative world of ideas. So we have some timing questions. We have some pressures, I think, that are generated largely uh, from the social media age that require um, very quick identification of solutions um, to these disruptive sort of elements that are going to take a lot longer to figure out. And frankly, I think some of these challenges for the long-term, short-term view tension exist on the left as well. Um, I'll leave it there for the moment and come back to some of these points later. Um, at the imaginative conservative, I would say that really the election of Trump doesn't make much difference to us. Um, and that's because our primary mission is to pursue the truth, the good, and the beautiful in everything we publish. And uh, that means we focus primarily on culture and the arts and, and, and books and higher learning um, and publishing our favorite poetry. And um, we try to limit politics to not more than 15 to 20% of what we publish. Um, that's intentional. I think the culture has uh, been corrupted uh, by politicization. Uh, we've made uh, politics in this country uh, right after the NFL is the most important sport. Um, and you have your team and you wear red and I have my team and I wear blue or vice versa. And we cheer each other on and we, uh, uh, we bemoan the evils of the quarterback of the other team while our uh, team uh, has a wonderful hero who will lead us to all glory and love and laughter. And the answer is that's never gonna be true. Uh, politics does not solve the needs of the human heart and never will. Um, it's a distraction from the things that we uh, should focus on in our own uh, families and our pursuit of the things that actually uh, grow uh, us as human beings. So I think politics is, a, is something we, we talk about because it's an important uh, aspect of our society. Uh, generally, uh, other than the entertainment value of it, uh, the vast majority of us wouldn't have anything to do with it if they didn't keep taking our money or spending our money in some way we didn't like. Um, that doesn't make it joy, that makes it a defensive measure. Um, and I don't, I'd rather stay on the offensive. And so for our publication, I mean, we, we had articles about the election coming into it. Some people were very pro-Trump, some people were never Trumpers. Um, as, an, as a journal, we did not take a, a stand on that. I mean, I have my own views, but I didn't publish them, partly because I didn't want people to think there is an imaginative conservative view. We have only over 600 authors. We publish over 5,000 essays. There isn't one view on our website, and that's very intentional. Um, so I would say that, to answer your question, we haven't changed what we do. We continue to pursue what we think is the most important uh, aspect of the human condition, uh, which is finding the true, the good, and the beautiful in our lives. And I don't think Donald Trump has much to do with that for us. <laughs> so, uh, so there are so many themes that I want to run with. Um, in fact, I've been trying to think of follow-up questions to a variety of the things uh, that have been touched on, and I feel like to, 
to follow any one path would do it sort of disservice to the others, but I will just have to do it. Um, so I suppose then I'll, I'll choose, I'll go with a specific question first and I'll just put it to one person on each side and then perhaps after that we could, um, we could sort of change it up again. I, I have a question that actually just relates to something that you just said, Winston, or actually to all of your remarks. Um, so as you say, you run the online journal of conservative thought, the imaginative conservative. Um, uh, visiting the website, as you say, any reader would immediately notice that your journal takes up not just politics, but also culture, um, literature, the arts, philosophy. Um, what thoughts do you have about the importance of, a, of, of, of going beyond policy debates into discussion of literature and aesthetics? What Im importance do you think that that has for a movement like conservatism? And do you think that literature and aesthetics are in some sense fundamentally political at all? And actually, right before I have you answer that, I might just put a question to David as well. Um, so, so David, a related question. Uh, you edit the literary section of the nation. When you sit down to edit or to call for articles, do you think of the work you're doing as serving a definably political purpose? Um, if so, to what extent and in what particular way? So I'll put it to Winston and then perhaps David could respond. Um, no, uh, I think politics, literature, music, the arts, um, they can always contain a political aspect as politics is part of the lives of the people who make the art and who view the art. Um, I think uh, if someone approaches any of those things with a political agenda, nine times out of 10, they're just a really bad artist. Um, you know, we have this thing in some of the communities now, and, and I'm not criticizing anybody in particular, where we talk about, oh, is this a Christian movie? Well, normally the answer, if the answer to that is yes, it means it's not a very good movie, but it's got a message. Well, we, we have to be great artists first. So if you tell me you're a conservative who likes to make movies, and I have a friend who's a director who doesn't want to be known as conservative because it would hurt his career in Hollywood, but he doesn't want to make conservative movies, he wants to make movies that are well done, that are well acted, that are well written. Um, I would hope that an artist or a composer, um, a poet, would do the same thing. Um, and it's, they wouldn't exclude politics because it's part of the human condition. Um, but if they focus exclusively on it, I would say nine times out of 10, it's just gonna be done badly. And the last thing I ever wanna do in our journal is do uh, things, do art, do music, do books, do culture, even do politics badly. Um, and three quarters of the current debates and publications, my goodness, they're not worth reading and they're not worth thinking about. I mean, let's have serious discussions of real thought uh, of importance. Uh, let's, let, let's not argue uh, the kind of superficial you know, debates over you know, whether a guy made, you know, so somebody made a, a lot of money for a speech. I, I don't care how much money people make for a speech. What I actually care about was in the speech. And if the speech was bad, then it doesn't matter how much you got paid for it, it was a bad speech. And if, this, and if you got nothing for it, um, which is actually what the majority of speeches get paid, um, and it was really good, then it was a better speech. The, the, the price tag does not determine value. And that's something that we as human beings should always remember, is that the dollar sign next to something does not determine the value of it. Um, and I think that's what we're trying to do in all of our work, and as I would consider us a site for literature and the arts, in addition to politics and economics and history and other things, I would say if we do them really well and our writers do them really well, then I don't care if I agree with them or not. Um, some of our writers voted for Trump. Some of our writers voted for Ted Cruz. Some of our writers, I know one of my favorite writers on our site voted for Barack Obama twice. That would be hard to explain to a lot of conservatives, um, and yet she can do it better than any of uh, anyone I know. So. I'm not as interested in kind of making everything we do into an ideological question. How about it's a question of quality and a question of beauty? And if we can stay there, I, I think, frankly, it's a lot more interesting. So I, I suspect uh, a fissure is already developing from the stage left and stage right. Um, I, I certainly think, and in the history of literary criticism, which has often been a site for hotly contested ideological debate. There's been a reduction of art, of creative expression, of literature into vehicles for conveying a certain political point of view, a certain argument. Um, certainly, the left has been the culprits of this as much as maybe the right. 
there's a certain way of doing a Marxist literary criticism that is very overdetermined in the way that it might read a text as being representative of someone's class or of the nature of a political economic system. With that said, though, um, I'll have to disagree, and I think that it's often a misreading of confusing the criticism of art with art itself. Um, I think all culture is, of course, political. If politics is about the debate and the description of the way we live communally. Um, and culture and literature are ways of giving meaning to our lives. Uh, T.S. Eliot and Joyce and a variety of other people were political by also avoiding politics, too. A certain aversion from politics and culture is also a way of uh, giving sanction to status quo politics and hierarchies. Um, in, in particular, in terms of what I do with my section, though, which is slightly different, that being literary editor is maybe a, a somewhat confusing title, because um, primarily my purview is editing the back of the book, which is a site for a very discreet and unique form of political and cultural criticism. Um, and I think in many ways, it was, you know, we call them book reviews or film reviews, but if you look at the, the nation, the New Republic, uh, in the 1930s, 1940s, that the, the reviews were actually, or even the little magazines like Dissent or Partisan Review, they are very short. Uh, they are 800 to 1,000 to, to 2,000 words. And I think moving forward into the 1950s and 1960s, and the New York Review kind of helped solidify this, uh, back of the book writing and in general book reviewing became review essays. And they became argument driven as opposed to descriptive. And so I see what actually I'm doing at The Nation is a lot like what I was doing at Descent. Um, it's an effort to use different human expressions that are in the world uh, as mechanisms to make arguments, um, to make persuasive arguments in different modes. Um, so whether I, I see there's a political purpose to my section, I. I, one of the great liberating things uh, about the nation is it's a much bigger tent than dissent. Dissent was kind of an anti-sectarian sect, even though it never always recognized and that might make Irving Howe a bit frustrated if I describe it as such. But the nation, I can publish people whose politics I don't necessarily agree with, but I do think politics are always there, and I'm often suspicious of a reading of a piece of literature without any context. Um, it might be my historian background, but everything emerges out of a moment, even in resistance to it. Um, so in terms of what I see the political uh, mandate of the back of the book being, I see it more as bringing the ideas that are often developing in a variety of smaller communities, whether it's, and Jacobin now is not a small community by any means, but maybe dissent still is, whether it's the little magazines uh, or the, the growing community of New York and uh, left intellectuals that are emerging, or it's academics, too. You know, a historian brings to bear to the public their expertise, the conversations they are having with their peers, and, and elucidates on some contemporary problem. So that, to me, seems to be the, the political mandate, which is more of an educational thing than an ideological one. But I do think culture is absolutely a site for intellectual fisticuffs and, and conflict, and I would resist, and perhaps, uh, Winston, you can push back or someone else wants to, but I would resist the idea of thinking of it as a kind of platonic realm of beauty, when in fact it's also a way of giving meaning to where we are today. Yeah, let me, yeah, just really quickly, yes, yeah. Yeah, I really disagree with you. Um, and I disagree, and it's not, it's not just you, there's people, plenty of people on the right who want to politicize everything too. Um, we don't live for politics. Politics is a, essentially a, a way of understanding the human condition. But it's a way of understanding. Art is a way of understanding the human condition. Um, poetry is a way of, hum, of understanding the human condition. I don't want, if I put everything through my political lens, which, which if I'm quoting you correctly, I think what you just said is, Either we write about politics or we don't, but when we don't, it's a political statement. So in other words, your answer is, it's all politics, all the time, and it doesn't matter what you do. And when I look into the eyes of my grandchildren, I am not thinking politically. 
and I don't think either are they. And I think we were all the smaller for it if we start thinking immediately about the political future of our children before we let the love flow into our hearts. Now we have hearts, we, do, we have pocketbooks, we have rights that have to be defended in the court of law. I, I mean, I don't deny that. But I do deny that man is primarily a political animal. I think man is primarily, first and foremost, an animal of love. And politics is not about love. It's another tool. Economics, the way we practice it, is not about love. It's another tool. So I think we should put things in the right places. So I do disagree with you, but it's okay. That's why we're on two different sides. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I won't add much more to this, um, but I would just note that um, part of loving the people around you is creating a world in which you would want them to live. And I think when, for example, you organize with uh, people in your neighborhood to save a park, it's community and it's love and it's something beautiful. And furthermore, um, the great sort of socialist mandate is to create a world in which everyone has enough such that people have freedom to express their true <coughs> human potential. And so if we think that everybody should be able to participate in creating things that are beautiful, that people should be able to write, that people should be able to, you know, I, it's hard not to paraphrase Marx here, but, um, you know, perhaps to only work in the morning, but write the novel maybe in the evening. Um, then we, of course, care about politics um, because we care about people having enough. We care about distribution. We care about all of these questions, which I think organizing towards can be quite a fulfilling human experience, but I would not try to guess someone else's feelings. The outcome is certainly fundamental to whether we can produce beauty and whether people can participate in it. Uh, and just one correction, too, or, or clarification as to what I was saying. I don't actually believe everything is political. In fact, I would worry if our personal lives, if our intimate relations, if our families, if the, that domain that, you know, as you, you mentioned, you kind of implicitly invoked uh, Aristotle, as Aristotle understands it, that domain is actually not in the public. But culture is in the public. Culture is human expression to be shared. And so there is always, you're always working your way into a realm in which there is a, a conflicting views as to how one sees the world. I also think Sarah's point is also correct too. Socialists care about individuality. We care about individual flourishing and part of actually the, the politics around culture, the political economy around culture is, or the argument at least, is that without rethinking the distribution of income without rethinking the distribution of social goods, we can't flourish, we can't create beauty. We can't even have those domestic lives that shouldn't be political. So politics is a, it moves in a variety of ways. And so I would resist it invading the way that you might love a grandchild, but I do think culture and poetry, which are things that are meant for the world, meant for the public, are inherently related to politics as well. So I'd like to put, just in the interest of time, I'd like to put a question uh, to this table and then a question to that table, um, both of which um, I think in a sense are about this idea of fusion, um, which Dan, we've talked about before, Frank Meyer's fusionism. Um, uh, so I, I'll just, I'll start this way. So you each lead either a conservative magazine or a journal or a think tank. Dan's conservative journal started as a challenge uh, to the neoconservatism of the Bush years. Um, Winston's journal emphasizes, as, as you were saying, a kind of conservatism of cultural and intellectual uh, tradition along the lines of Russell Kirk and uh, Edmund Burke. And Ingrid, your think tank, uh, the Archbridge Institute, seeks to, quote, lift barriers to economic mobility by embracing principles of personal responsibility, rule of law, and entrepreneurship. So each of these missions are linked in some sense, to be sure, but their variety does, I think, point to the fact that conservatism as a concept can and has meant a number of different things in American politics. Given these different meanings, do you think it's necessary for a certain fusion of the varieties of conservatism uh, to occur, uh, especially given the intense debate over the very term conservatism that Trump's victory has in many ways affected or led to? And do you think of your work at all as being in service of some kind of fusion? Well, 
I think uh, fusionism is a very uh, widely misunderstood concept. Uh, Frank Meyer, who was literary editor of National Review for a long time, uh, he did not set out to take two disparate elements and simply put them into a political coalition together, those elements being uh, the kind of libertarian tendency on the right and uh, the traditionalist tendency. Rather, what Frank Meyer was trying to do was to show that there was a shared uh, philosophical mission involved in both the libertarian tendency and the traditionalist tendency. And that tension, the fact that you have two things that are also one thing, that they have a shared root, but they do sort of branch out in different ways, um, was one of the strengths of conservatism and was one of the strengths of fusionism. Because it gave you this balance and this tension. It gave you some space to think through uh, the fundamental questions and to um, you know, kind of weigh things dynamically. It was not just a checklist. It was something you really had to uh, work out for yourself. You had to do the math. And um, unfortunately, over time, the idea of fusionism tends to get reduced to a mere political coalition building. And uh, that is, you know, there's a place for that. Coalitions are the essence of politics. But that's not the philosophical objective that someone like Meyer was pursuing. Um, as far as um, where conservatism stands today, um, that mission is as important as ever. And it's a theoretical mission. It's a mission about going deeper than just uh, mere politics. But it's also not a mission that is purely cultural. It's a mission that tries to balance these different elements of the right. And by allowing a certain uh, free play of ideas, by allowing a certain uh, discourse and dialogue within the right itself, I think you actually get um, more clarification of your ideas. Yeah, some ideas you'll wind up finding, OK, they just can't be reconciled. Maybe there are things that are simply uh, really part of some other tradition. But it's worth um, you know, continually having this dynamism in your mind in order to uh, strengthen yourself. Otherwise, what you wind up is with um, a rigidity and a brittleness, which I think um, all too many conservatives came to possess uh, you know, uh, perhaps about 10 years ago under the Bush years, where you're simply following a leader, where you're simply robotically applying policies like cutting taxes regardless of whether or not it produces good outcomes for middle America. Um, any number of things like that are not really, uh, they're not philosophically sound, but they also wind up being very bad politics in the end. So by having a, a serious commitment to philosophy, a serious commitment to examining the different uh, threads and uh, elements of your tradition, I think you actually wind up being stronger, more honest, and also more politically effective. The notion of trying to redefine fusionism to suit this particular political moment is something that many conservatives and libertarians are looking at quite closely. And there's a lot of disagreement, as Dan alludes to, um, about what a sort of revised or new fusionism would look like or even if it can occur. I think one um, other way of possibly thinking about this on the conservative uh, sort of side of things is whether or not, rather than fusion, we should think about areas of new compatibilities. And that can be particularly true, for example, in the realm of political economy. Um, where you have as many discussions and, and even disagreements um, within conservative or libertarian circles about free market economics versus distributism, uh, what the actual effects of poverty relief are that are generated or not by the market. Uh, so within the philosophical family broadly defined, if you will, um, I think the notion of fusionism is, is a little bit uncomfortable at the moment. Um, and as Dan so rightly says, uh, the notion of sort of uh, a new kind of Frank Meyer part two um, may not be entirely uh, possible, but areas of compatibility of redefining um, yet retaining core common values and principles is entirely possible. And I think this kind of, of disruptive discussion, and I mean that in a positive way that's, that's occurring within the conservative world and the libertarian world, um, is, is, is going to have to address all of these kind of things. Um, and, and actually, I think um, our conservative and libertarian friends um, are gonna probably find that there's some areas where they may not uh, find the agreement that they may seek, um, not just on some of the social issues, but even in the realm of economics. Um, but I don't think at the same time on the conservative side of things, and there may be things that um, progressive colleagues uh, can draw in terms of synergies on their side, I don't think we should be afraid of having these conversations. You know, we, we are now uh, perhaps finally in a way coming to the end of the long 20th century. Um, you know, there, there are certain historians who talk about the long 
sort of 18th century, extending well into the 1820s and 1830s, uh, where you had the knock-on effects of many of the revolutionary ideas in the Enlightenment, uh, in the French Enlightenment and the British Enlightenment, not really taking full effect, especially politically, until well into the 19th century. Well, we might be coming um, into a similar kind of understanding of the 20th century. So maybe around about now, we're getting to the time where we start to really see what the end of the Cold War really meant. It's been a generation. Um, I'm a Cold War kid, I lived through that. Did we really know what the end of all that meant? in 1989 and 1998, no, we didn't. But now maybe we're sort of coming to the end of that. My point being is both on the conservative side and on the progressive side, I don't think we should be um, afraid of having our internal conversations. Um, and I think it's really very encouraging that the younger people, so I'm just gonna be really crass here and just tell you how old I am, I'm 52. I don't think the people who are 10, 20, 30 years younger than I am who are coming into these intellectual spaces are afraid of having these arguments, and I think we should encourage them to do that. They might not do it in the context that we're familiar with. That's okay. I'm just, a, I guess I'm really responding partially to Dan. It's, I think we are rigid. Uh, we rigidly pursue the conservation of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, and that the human person has the capability to be in touch uh, with the fullness of their um, personhood. And that that is found in those things. It's probably for most of us not found in, uh, in materialism. It's probably not found in uh, um, either a radical communitarianism found in politics or a radical individualism found in politics. Um, so from that perspective, uh, we want to very rigidly preserve the best that has come before us and enhance that and add to it. Um, we find that for us that's probably not primarily going to be done in the political realm. Matter of fact, it's not going to primarily be done in the political realm. Um, and so, but we're, that means we're open to a dialogue, uh, whether it be uh, conservatives who uh, would share those values with us or uh, liberals who would share those values with us. Um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a bridge right now, I think, between some on the left who see kind of the, um, uh, the humane economy or the smallest beautiful kind of economy um, with some of the folks on the right who might be more the distributist, uh, interested in distributism and some of those things, who say that part of the problem we have today is scale. Um, that it's not just big government, it's big business that's also a challenge uh, to the human person. Um, that when things are too big for the human person to, to comprehend in the scale of their day-to-day -day lives, that they're already part of their person, personhood is being taken away from them. Uh, so how can we change that? Um, there's different paths to get there. Um, you know, a conservative might want to uh, grow small businesses. Um, a, a, a liberal might want to break up big businesses. Uh, those are discussions to have um, but the whole, at the center of all of that is that the individual human person, the family, the community is respected and uh, encouraged to cooperate on the greatest basis possible. So when, um, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, I can't see the sign. Um, but when you were saying earlier that uh, uh, this idea that we come together in community, well, I think of that, I don't call that a liberal value or a conservative value, I call it a, a value of, of being uh, good human people who live in community and want to work together uh, to create a better lives for both their own families and for the families that surround them. Um, so if, if that's fusionism, then I'm for it. Um, if it's a fusionism of radical individualism and radical communitarianism, then I'm against it. So I imagine you might have some responses to what was just said. I'll put a question to you sort of that's related, I think, um, and then if you'd like to field it, great. If you also have some responses, that's great too. I, so I'll put it to Bhaskar, um, but um, I'd like, in my final question, to sort of broaden it to um, all three of you. Uh, so Bhaskar, you came on the podcast um, not long ago and sort of in the middle of the conversation explored an idea that you referenced um, very early on in your remarks. Um, I'm wondering, uh, well, first I'll ask you to sort of suffer through my quotation of you um, at length, yeah, uh, which is, right? yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Can you also do it in his voice? I could, I could, I was, I was thinking of it, but, but I can't. Um, uh, and then after, I'd like to sort of explore it with you and perhaps get um, all three of your responses to it. So Bhaskar says on the podcast, um, if you want to hear it, you should subscribe. Um, <laughs> one of the ways I came to the idea of creating a publication in part was because of my interest in and engagement with the National Review. And that particular period of late 1950s, 
early 1960s conservatism and Frank Meyer's fusionist project around American conservatism. I find these thinkers extremely useful, but in order to do so, I had to read them on their own terms. The US conservative movement was isolated and marginalized at mid-century. Their ability to crawl out of it can be an inspiration for the left. The idea of taking what seems to be kind of separate and competing constituencies and reweaving them behind a common project is fundamentally, I think, one of the missions of the left and one of the missions of the publications of the left. I like to think that Jacobin is contributing in a way to that effort to stitch together something to the left of liberalism. So I'm wondering if you could expand on what you, what you mean here. Um, when you started Jacobin, did you feel that the position of socialist perspectives in American politics had become marginalized to the same degree as conservative perspectives had during the mid-20th century? And then I suppose for the entire panel, um, what kinds of fusion has your own intellectual and political project necessitated? So first to Bhaskar and then the group. Uh, I do not recall that. Um, <laughs> you sort of said something have, like that. If you me. have an audio evidence of it, then, I do. You know, we can dispute that later. Um, so you know, you know. On, on the one hand, I, I would just say that I think that instead of looking, if you look at the, a lot of the history of the left, you're looking at a history of plan a weakness and marginality in the U.S. Right? The left the, is the exception, not the rule. The greatest left or proto left that I think we had was the left that that helped um, you know, abolish labor in this country that, that emerged in that, you know, the period before the Civil War and in Reconstruction. And since then, you know, we had our brief moments, but it's been more the exception than the rule. Why? I think not because workers are confused, but because they're, they're rational, right? So um, workers are dependent on capitalists and capitalists are dependent on workers, but it's an asymmetrical dependency. An individual worker needs the stability of their firm and their employment more than any individual capitalist needs a worker. So if times are tough and your boss is bad, but you're in conditions of high unemployment or insecurity or whatnot, you should just probably keep your head down and try to fill in any gaps or relying on your kinship networks, your friends, your families, you know, things like, like that. That to me is perfectly rational. The, the, you know, workers um, turning to a left today would be completely, that would put me into more crisis than the continued um, seeming acquiescence or as some Marxists would say, false consciousness of workers. It would put me into crisis if they did something that's irrational because agree or disagree with it, you know, a lot of our, the premises of our thought is based on you know, 19th century rationalism. That was the first half of our panel on political journalism post-election 2016. To hear how our panelists on the left think about this question of fusion, listen to next week's episode. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference, you've just been hearing clips from that, challenges leading thinkers on the left as well as the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies and, as we've been hearing in this panel conversation and in almost every episode of Common Ground, it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.